This podcast was made on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Wax Lyrical pays deepest respects to Elders past, present and emerging. This is Wax Lyrical, where we tell stories through word and sound. But don't forget about silence. Remember to pay attention to the space between words and the place from where sounds come and return. You're listening to a dawn chorus recorded under a tree in the bush near the Yarringabilly Caves in New South Wales. The other sounds you'll hear throughout the episode were recorded along the east coast of Australia and by the Darabin Creek in Melbourne. I'm Al Gould Blooms. This episode of Wax Lyrical is dedicated to green things, givers of life, cycles, soil and shit. Our ancestors formed a symbiosis with plants a long time ago, and before that plants formed one with water and the rocks. We're going to travel through this story right now. Stick around if you find that exciting. Lost for words. I'm lost for words. I remember learning about the interconnected relationship uh, between humans and plants in a biology class at uni. And it was in the first week and they were just skimming past some knowledge that you should um, go over before the course started. This is Vera Primavera, an environmental science student, and my younger brother. He taught me that plants and humans were engineered over time to snugly fit each other's needs. outlining the equation of photosynthesis and cell respiration, which are just basically just a cycle that all is going on all the time in, in nature. Yeah, it was interesting because it was something that I hadn't looked into deeply or thought about deeply. It's the first time I'd learnt it, but looking at the relationship between the two processes was pretty mind-blowing. Plants use the energy from the sun as well as carbon dioxide and water to create glucose and in almost perfect harmony humans use glucose, break that up with oxygen to create energy and carbon dioxide and water plants then use again to create more glucose. It's so obvious that we've evolved next to these plants that it's such a beautiful thing to see it written down so simply. It's also quite interesting how it was just gone over. 
such a hasty manner at the start of a class. But so important to all of life, I guess. In terms of background, yeah, look, it's very significant. I mean, I grew up in the bush and very much was involved with, yeah, natural environmental systems, you know, ecology and what have you. And basically for my first degree, I then did sort of botany and science, you know, the, the sort of classical thing. Um, and actually I did a forestry degree looking at the whole land management, forestry, biosystem management. But very quickly in that uh, course of that study, really got engrossed with microbiology because it's actually the, the microbes, the organisms for the last 3.8 billion years have been actually driving the fundamental processes that govern this biosystem and actually the planet. The voice you're hearing is Walter Yana, a fascinating soil microbiologist. The audio is lovingly lifted from Julian DeLorenzo's wonderful podcast called Tangled. Like most, Walter's message is cautionary, but he offers very practical, logical, and hopeful advice on cooling the planet by using the hydrological systems that develop naturally on Earth. Ninety-five percent of the heat dynamics of the blue planet is governed by water, has been for the last four billion years. It's, in a sense, then soils, hydrology that govern that whole water dynamics. And obviously, when we look at what we're facing, you know, climate extremes, water security issues, food security issues, habitat degradation, desertification, and all that compounding for social stability, it all comes back to these primary soil-related processes and particularly those microbial processes that make that thing happen. Charles Keeling, in 1958, put the evidence out there, look, CO2 is going up abnormally going up in the zigzag pattern you know we're basically we're releasing more in northern hemisphere every winter drawing it down in summer but we've always got this deficit therefore co2 is going up so we what we've got is a classical symptom right it's a symptom And in a sense, when you say, well, what's the cause of this symptom? It is the fact that, yeah, we're oxidizing more biosphere carbon than we're drawing down every year. Okay. And in a sense, in the beginning um, of that whole climate analysis up to the mid 80s, we were looking at all the different processes that involved, including, of course, hydrology and you know, what is man's impact on the biosphere and we had a major conference in Stockholm 
1972, you know, the World Environment sort of uh, summit, and that whole biosphere process was on the on the sort of analysis block. But then in the mid 80s, basically, some people were saying, look, it's getting too complicated. There's too many variables to make the public aware and to raise it politically this whole climate debate politically, we've got to simplify the message. Some people were saying, look, it's getting too complicated. There's too many variables to make the public aware and to raise it politically, this whole climate debate politically, we've got to simplify the message. We've got to simplify the message. Simplify the message. for the last 30 years we've in a sense trapped ourselves looking at this very narrow tunnel of co2 greenhouse global warming and of course it's valid you know that's the whole point it, it's true but it represents only a small part of the dynamics and what's really come very, very clear, two very important things. First of all, we can't solve it with CO2 emission reductions, right? Because there's 50 times more CO2 absorbed in the world's oceans. And as we draw down carbon from the air, the oceans re-equilibrate that CO2 back in the air. So it'll take centuries, you know, to actually try to regulate this thing through this 3% lever. But then in 2005, there was a major scientific conference in the Hadley Center. The reality became, it is actually dangerous climate extremes that's going to sort of be how climate is going to impact you know floods storms droughts desertification wildfires right impact, impact. you know floods storms droughts desertification wildfires right impact so these are all hydrological so the reality was that look it's not CO2 that's going to kill people, but it's actually these climate hydrological extremes. It's not CO2 that's going to kill people. So what are we doing about building resilience of biosystems and communities against these extremes? And these are all hydrological so in a sense 
we've been trying to play around with the 3% lever, but we haven't empowered ourselves to look at the 95% lever. And to see how does nature manage that 95% and can we actually regenerate and actually safely, naturally cool the planet and rebuild stability through stepping into that hydrological realm. And that's really the, that's really the, the black hole, the tunnel, that I'm trying to say, hey, we've got to get out of this black hole because it's not going to get us anywhere. It's not wrong by itself, but basically, you know, the elephant isn't in the room. The elephant is too big to be in the room. And the elephant is friendly as long as we're able to see it, right? <laughs> Twenty million years ago, basically there was no life on land. The life in the oceans was limited by nutrients, which we had to leach from the rocks, you know, the land rocks. And so there was a real competitive advantage of fungi colonizing that rock to solubilize nutrients. And of course, those fungi then started breaking down that rock to get the nutrients, leaving behind organic detritus. But, of course, the fungi are heterotrophs, animals, effectively, and they are genetically like us, and they can't make sugars. They can't make energy. So they had to form a symbiosis with plants, with algae, to fix carbon, to fix sugars for their growth. And we see those all around us, pedogenesis, the lichens, right? So there's lichens on rock, concrete, wood, plastic, everything, breaking it down, they're really those primary solubilizing microbes that drive the whole process. Okay, and pedogenesis simply soil formation, soil genesis. And it was really the formation of putting organic matter into the soils, into that mineral detritus, that allowed those soils to hold more water, to make more nutrients more available, to let roots to grow, to let plants to grow. And then very, very rapidly, because of that pedogenesis, biosystem development processes, we develop 
forests across, you know, the basically 95% of the land surface on this planet. What really this fungal pedogenesis processes did, it created the Earth's soil carbon sponge. Soil carbon
Okay, so think of that that fungal organic matter processes put just say a meter of spongy soil across that rocky surface. And that meter of spongy soil was of course able to infiltrate, retain rainfall, and that spongy soil and that water was able to maintain that vegetation and that vegetation was able to cool the planet. Okay, now just a simple bit of physics. <laughs> every gram of water, every cubic centimetre of water that evaporates or transpires through plants needs to take 590 calories of energy to turn from liquid into the gas, the water vapour gas. And in doing that, it takes 590 calories of heat from the Earth's surface back up into the atmosphere and then most of it dissipates into space. So there is nature's cooling dynamic, transpiration, evaporation, but it depends on the soil, it depends on the sponge, it depends on pedogenesis. We have degraded that sponge massively, we can go through all the data, and basically in that we have degraded the world's both carbon drawdown capacity, but also its hydrological cooling capacity. And we can basically even a minimal regeneration of that system can safely and naturally cool the planet. And that's really our last chance. It's getting really serious. We've got less than 10 years. Again. 
Okay, and this comes to pedogenesis. It's very simple. Like if you look at a rock, you know, you drop it on your foot, it hurts. It's heavy. (laughs) It's got a bulk density of, you know, 3.5 or something like that. And yet a healthy soil has got a bulk density that's weight per unit volume of about 1 gram, 1.2 grams per cc. So by definition, 66% of a soil is air, is voids, it's sponge. Is air, is voids, it's sponge. And it's those voids, those empty cathedrals, right? That Those voids, which are really critical because that's where water is held. That's where, in a sense, the whole biological life and cycling happens. And in a sense, that makes nutrients available, that allows roots to penetrate to depth. Instead of having compacted, concreted, hard surfaces that lose water. If we can rebuild these cathedrals in the soil, these voids in the soil, we rebuild the sponge, we can hold and infiltrate rainfall, we can extend the longevity of green growth in the lengths at which plants are able to transpire. And, And that's just powerful in cooling. And you see this all around you. I mean, yes, if I have a, you live in Melbourne, if I've got a treed suburb, it's basically transpiring for 12 hours a day. 
and it's six degrees centigrade cooler in those treed forests or the, those treed suburbs compared to the concrete suburbs next door. I'm a scientist, right? I'm a scientist. And we've got hundreds of years of data where we've had scientists or people walking out to the rain gauge every morning and they look into the tin can, there's nothing there, and record a big zero in the rainfall gauge, right? But up to 5% of the air, the content of the air, the weight content is made up of water vapor. And if you think there's a kilogram of air above every square centimeter of land surface or ocean surface as well, okay, that's a weight of air. And if it's 5%, that's 50 centimeters, 500 millimeters of water sitting above every square centimeters of the land surface. But it's in the air. It's water vapor in the air, right? And this water vapor, of course, flows from the oceans across all the land surfaces. So effectively, there's rivers of water, you know, 500 millimeters of water flowing across all the land surface every day, continually. rivers of water of water flowing across all the land surface every day continually now we've got farmers and if they can get 200 millimeters of rainfall a year a year they can grow a crop of wheat and here we are, there's up to 500 millimetres flowing across all this land, all these deserts every day. But we don't harvest it, right? Because what it stays up in the air as water vapour, but more dangerously, these humid hazes. And for example, in Melbourne or Victoria, you've had this, the droughts, and basically what you're recording now, Bureau of Meteorology, it's hot, hot, hot. It's hot, hot, hot. But it's also 70, 80% humidity, but never rains. Okay, and that's this water in the air. And in a sense, nature says, yeah, if I have water in the air, it actually heats up the air. You know, it's one of the big hydrological heat factors, but it also is aridifying. It also desiccates because it doesn't rain. And to get it to rain, you've got to coalesce, you know, just coalesce, bring together about one million of these haze droplets to make a cloud droplet and then to make a rain droplet, right? So it's really sucking together one million of these haze micro droplets to make a raindrop. And to do that, the most dominant and by far the most 
powerful hygroscopic precipitation nuclei of bacteria that are released from the stomatal cavity of trees. By far, stomatal cavity of trees. By far, not all trees, certain trees that transpire up into the air as part of that cooling transpiration flow and actually coalesce and bring down rainfall. So we've got this powerful situation where nature has evolved these exquisite symbioses which actually create their own rain. Every square meter of soil, right? Every garden bed, every nature strip, every you know backyard, every courtyard, it's a case of if I can empower myself through pedogenesis for building sponge, right, which is compost and those things, if I can make that sort of habitat spongier, keep it green for longer, right, then it's actually contributing to that cooling and basically it collectively is the empowerment that we need to actually make this planet in the next 10 years again habitable and safe and cooler.
you for listening. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe. We release episodes every two weeks. And if you have a story idea, send it to waxlyricalfbi at gmail.com. Goodbye. By far, the mantle cavity of trees, by far,